This morning, I'm going to continue in our, in our study in the Gospel of John. So if you will, turn to John chapter 3. That's where we're going to spend our time. You know, in John chapter 3, Jesus says some things that really sets the Christian faith apart from all other beliefs. There's some things that Jesus says here in this chapter that really will confront us. You know, I thought of the years, over the years, the many times I've, I've shared my faith. I, I love doing that. I love being able to rub elbows. In fact, there's been times when I've been not in ministry, but in the workplace, and I enjoyed that because I get to share what I believe about Jesus and why Jesus makes a difference in my life and what he's done in my life. And I love to, to share that testimony and to share that word with people. I think of different people I've shared my faith with over the years. I think of a guy that I worked with, his name was Doug. I was a long time ago, but Doug, I never forgot him as I would share my faith with him. He began to, to, to tell me what he believed. And I remember one time he said, you know, Greg, I believe that we determine our own destiny, that within us, within us as, as human beings, that we have the ability and the capability to determine our outcome, our destiny. I remember at that fact, it was at the same place. I was working at a gas station, a guy by the name of Red. Red was kind of a fun guy. He, his hair was red. He had kind of red complexion. That's why we called him Red. And he was just jolly, man. He just was always laughing, having fun. But we had many conversations. And I, I remember Red telling me, Greg, I just don't believe there's a God. I don't think there's a supreme being. There's nobody out there. In fact, I don't, I don't believe there's anybody out there that's going to tell me what I should do or shouldn't do. And I just don't believe in a God. I also remember... <clears throat> A guy by the, by the name of Sam. I worked with Sam as well. <laughs> Sam, I loved him. But I remember as we began to talk over the years or over the time that we got together, Sam began to tell me how he believed in this, this kind of a eternal line of re-existence. That is really reincarnation, that we kind of live this life and depending how we live this life determines what we come back as. And it's just kind of this eternal, eternal line of existence. I remember a guy by the name of, of uh, John. John was, was a, a school teacher. He was very intelligent, very well read. He loved literature. And I remember as I shared with him what the scripture said about salvation and who Jesus was. I remember he, his comment to me was, that's very romantic. I was like, well, unpack that. What do you mean? He says, it's this very romantic story within literature. He goes that this God would love his people and send his son to die for them and that if they believe in him, they would receive life. That's nothing more than literature, but it's a beautiful picture. It's very romantic. And, and I remember a guy, a guy by the name of, of Tom. Tom was really kind of unique. Tom, I had many discussions with over the scriptures because Tom would go to the scriptures and he would use the scriptures. And finally, one day, because of our differences of, of interpreting passages, he finally said to me, he says, you see, what I believe is not what the scripture says, but what I believe, it's, it, what I think it says. And I was like, what? Yeah, he said, the authors really didn't know what they were writing. He said, we're so much more in, intellectual now, and we're so much more full of knowledge that it's really not what the scripture says, but it's what I think it says that I, is what I believe. As a result of that, we could never really come to any kind of agreement on many issues within the scriptures. One of them that really broke my heart, I met this gentleman when I was in college. Um, 
he had a nice garden. He was right next to our, our dorms where we, where we were staying. And, and my roommate and I got to witness to him quite often or talk to him about the scriptures. And he, because of the garden, he always kind of drew me in. He would, he would give us students sometimes uh, produce from his garden. And I remember his name was Joe. And I remember Joe standing there and we were talking to him about salvation and what he really believed. Because Joe went to church. He always went to church. He, he, he believed that, in fact, he believed that his church attendance and his good works was, was enough to get him into the kingdom of heaven. I never forget his words to me that day when we were standing there next to his garden and he held up both hands and he said, he said, Greg, I have missed church less than the number of the fingers that are on both of my hands. Now, this gentleman was probably in his 60s when I was talking to him way back then. He said, I probably miss church less than the number of fingers on my hands. He says, surely God won't keep me out of heaven. You know, as I share those, and I could share many more. In fact, even as I stand here and I start sharing those, I start thinking of others who I've shared my faith with and different responses that that they've had. But one of the things that every one of those have a consistency of is that they place their trust or their faith in something that could not save them. They placed their faith or their trust in something that could not save them. They, they had doubts about the scriptures and the message, and they found other things that they put their faith and trust in, but it still came up short. In fact, in our text today, in John chapter 3, we see a, a man coming to, to Jesus. His name is Nicodemus. And when Nicodemus comes to Jesus, he had curiosity. He, he wanted to investigate. He saw things that, that Jesus was doing that that he, he had to go and he had to investigate. But at the same time, Nicodemus was trusted in something that could not save him. If we were to go back into chapter two, we'd see in chapter two where Jesus turns water to wine. And really a key part of that section and of that, that miracle is at the end of the, that, that section, verse, I think it's verse 11 or 12, it says the disciples believed as a result of that, as a result of that miracle. Then we see him in the next section, he's, he's kind of putting together a, a cord, a, a whip. And he goes into the house of God, into the temple, and he runs out the money changers and those who would, who would des- desecrate the, the, the house of God. And the response was, who are you? What sign will you give us to show that you have the authority to do this? And Jesus says, tear down this temple and in three days, I will, I will build it. And their response was, 46 years it took us to build this temple. And you're going to build it in three days? But then in the text, John tells us that the disciples remembered that after Jesus' death and burial and then his resurrection, that they realized he wasn't talking about the building. He was talking about his temple. And that he would in three days rise again. And, then, and it says there that the disciples believed the scriptures. And they believed in Jesus. Because it brought faith. In the very next section, in the last part of chapter two, it says that Jesus did many miracles and many came to faith as a result of the signs that he did. But Jesus didn't entrust himself to them because he knew what was in the heart of man. And it's interesting that that term is said in the very first verse of chapter three in verse one, it says, and there was a man. Here's somebody that Jesus knew what was in his heart, but Jesus was still very aware. In fact, if you will, look in verse one of chapter three. It says, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. When you talk about a Pharisee, you're talking about a very conservative group of people. 
They, they were devoted to the law of, of, of Judaism. They were devoted to the Judea, uh, Jewish faith. They were very conservative. I mean, they weren't like the Sadducees. Sadducees didn't believe in reincarnation, the resurrection, whereas, whereas the Pharisees did believe in the resurrection of life. They're, they were known for their, 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 their staunch stands on, on what they believed was truth, even in the traditions of their faith. In fact, it goes on and identifies this, this man, Nicodemus, as a ruler of the Jews. In other words, he was a member of the Sanhedrin. There were 71 members of this, of this group, and the Sanhedrin oversaw where they decided issues in regards to both civil and criminal issues according to the Jewish law. So they would, they would have people, in fact, it was interesting, they didn't have lawyers like we do today. Someone came and they stood before the, the Sanhedrin and they gave their case. And so the Sanhedrin were those who were deciding those factors. In fact, we see later on where the Sanhedrin tries to trap Jesus or trick Jesus. And later on, they were the ones who ended up bringing him on, on over to, to Pontius Pilate. So there was, there was, those, there was this group that Nicodemus was a, was a member of. And Nicodemus comes to Jesus. In verse two, it says, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are the teacher come from God for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, this is kind of an interesting statement. A couple of things here. When he comes by night, history tells us a lot of times the, the Jewish leaders or rabbis or teachers would get together at night to teach. Maybe that's why uh, Nicodemus was coming to Jesus. He wanted to have this conversation, him and Jesus. Maybe he thought he had heard things that Jesus taught that he's gonna straighten out. Or maybe he was just coming for a different reason. Maybe he was just coming under the cover of night because he didn't want the other members of the Sanhedrin know that he was talking to this man, Jesus. I'm not sure why he came. The scripture doesn't really tell us other than this, that he did come by night. And he calls him rabbi or teacher. So I think he's looking at him as an equal, as someone that, we could, that he could talk to, that he could kind of discourse, uh, go through a discourse of these things. But then in verse three, Jesus, Jesus says something. Jesus answered him and says, truly, truly. In fact, that's interesting. I wanna emphasize this, that, <clears throat> that from now on in the gospel of John, when you see truly, truly, now some of your translations may say it is true or maybe amen, amen, depending on your translation. But the, the word truly literally means it is so. It's literally like Jesus is saying, it is so, it is so, I say to you. So anytime you see that in the gospel of John, one of the things you wanna do is you wanna stop. You wanna immediately pay attention to what's being said. Because what Jesus is about to say is something that's very important that everyone should hear. And so Jesus says to Nicodemus in response, it is true, it is true, I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That term born again, it literally has the idea to kind of be born from above, or it can mean the idea of again. I remember when I was a young boy, I was getting in in a lot of trouble. I remember finding out later that my parents were even looking at like Bowie's homes and so forth to kind of put me in because they, I was getting in some trouble and I shouldn't have been and I was around the wrong group and they were trying to figure out what to do. And I can, rem- I can remember they decided we're gonna take Greg to church, you know, because church will get him saved or do something, right? Well, by the grace of God, I never forget that day when that pastor p- preached from the gospel of John chapter 14. And he said, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
No one comes to the Father but by me. Now, I was only 11 years old, but at the time, I had seen a lot of people lie. I had seen my parents lie. Everybody I knew. I mean, deception was this part of life. It's the way you survived. If you were living in, I've lived right off the projects, and, and you in that neighborhood, you just deceived. That was the way you survived. And I remember thinking, truth. I want to know truth. I want to know someone that knows truth. It was a Southern Baptist church, so they had an offering at the end, and I came, or an invitation at the end, and I came forward, and this guy took me off to a side room, and he began to open up to me the scriptures, and, and he led me to the fact that Jesus died for me, and that he rose again, and that if I would believe, I would have eternal life. I remember that day receiving Christ into my life. Uh, I'll never forget that moment when I first heard of the good news of God. And I realized in that moment, not only was Jesus truth, but he was the way. Being a good Southern Baptist church, the next Sunday night, you know what happened to me, right? That's when they baptize you. You know, immediately you get baptized. I'll never forget my baptism. It was a large church. It was two balconies and they had, the baptism literally came out up here and, and you actually got in the water where people couldn't see you and you just kind of walked around the line. There were a lot of people coming to Christ at the time. And I remember walking around and, you know, the pastor just grabbed your nose, and throw you under and raise you up and, and uh, real quick. And the next guy came along and I remember going along and as he lowered me into the water and then as he brought me out of the water, the water was running off my face. I heard these words, raised to walk in a newness of life. And I never forgot those words because then I realized my life was never to be the same. That Jesus wasn't just the truth and he wasn't just the way, but he was the life. And I remember being excited about that. And I was going to go to my school and tell all my friends. Well, I didn't know a lot of kids in my school that went to, went to church. But I knew who the biggest bully was in the school. We knew each other well. I remember I went to the, to, the, to the Christian bookstore that was right there by the church. And I went in there and got this big, huge button. Got two of them on both sides. Because I was going to make sure everybody knew what had happened. One said, like, God loves you or something. I don't remember. But one of them said, born again. Man, I was proud of that. You know, back in the day, we used to talk about born again Christians. You know, were you a Christian? I'm a born again Christian, right? Because it was an important term. I went up to that bully and I remember that day and I went up there and I told him, I said, you know, God loves you. And I was like, I'm, I'm thinking, okay, I gotta be ready because we'd have many encounters before, right? And I'm thinking, okay, He's going to hit me, but I'm not going to hit him back. I'm going to be different. And I never forget, he kicked me. He didn't hit me. He just kind of kicked me and walked off. And I went, wow, God, that was pretty easy. You know, that was nothing. I never forgot that. Because being born again, the word here literally has the idea born from above. It's passive. What that means is it's not something I attained, but it's something God did. By God's grace, he saved me. You know, we always think it's something we do to get to the salvation, right? We don't do anything. It's not about what I do. It's about what he did for me. That's the grace of God. The mercy of our God. The saving power of our God. That we were born from above. And it's, it's interesting. It's the idea. In fact, the, the very word literally where the idea has a means of transformation of a person so that they are able to enter another world and adapt to its conditions. And it's the idea here by where God born, made, born us again, born us from above, that we might enter into the kingdom of God. 
and adapt to the, to the life that the kingdom is about, that he would work in our lives. It's a powerful statement to say that we're born again. We should never be ashamed of that. Many have laughed when I've said, I believe that I'm born again. And I don't expect them to understand until they know the power of salvation in their life. Well, Nicodemus, he responds to this down in, in verse four. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? He's thinking of it in a physical sense. And, and again, in the Greek, that word can mean again. But here it also has the idea born from above. And Nicodemus didn't understand that. How can a man who's old, he's astonished. He's amazed. He's marveling at this statement. Doesn't make sense. So Jesus comes back in verse five and Jesus answered again. It is true. It is true. I say to you, we want to hear, pay attention. Unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is the flesh and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you, you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. There's a lot being said here. First thing he says, born of, of water and of spirit. There's different views held here. One view is that it's water baptism. There's some that would say, in order to be saved, you have to be baptized in water. Uh, Mansfield Bible, we don't hold that view. Uh, there isn't a baptismal regeneration. There, there's, there's times in the scriptures where it's very clear where people came to Christ and it wasn't because of baptism. Baptism is a result of, of, of obedience. It's a demonstration of what God has done for us, but it isn't a process of salvation. Another view is that it was referring to John the Baptist who, who would have been fresh on their minds. He had been baptized in a baptism of repentance. And so they, they would believe that this is kind of reference to repentance. In fact, if a Gentile at the time wanted to become a Jew and become a part of Judaism, they would have had to go through a baptism. They had to go through a process of cleansing and, and repentance. And so there's many who believe that this would be the idea that one must be born of repentance and of the spirit. My third view, and it's really the view I personally hold, is the view of physical birth. You know, you're born in, in a sack of water, so to speak. I'll never forget we were in Maine and uh, we had Scotty and Lydia was pregnant with Santa and it was getting, getting to be that, about that time. Well, we were 40, 45 miles from the nearest hospital, which would be like one of these little clinics around here, not a, not a big hospital. And uh, so we were about 45 miles away from there and Lydia was kind of at night and she said, my water broke. So we packed up in the car. Well, there was a snowstorm coming in. It had blown down a tree and I drive in the ditch. I wasn't wanting to deliver a baby that night. I wanted to get to the hospital, right? But here, Santa came once the water broke. And he says here, also in verse six, he says, that which is born of the, of the flesh is flesh. I believe that he's making a reference there. And then he says, he says that which is, is born of the spirit is spirit. Notice that he uses a capital on the first spirit and the second one he uses a, a small cap. Because the picture is that while God, by his grace and his mercy, uh, causes us to be born again when we believe, we're not born to become deity. 
We are born again by him, but not to become deity. We are born because of his work in our lives. And then he talks about, he gives an illustration of, of, of the wind. You kind of don't know where the wind came from and where it's, where it's going because you don't understand the wind. And he says, well, it's the same for that person who comes to Christ, who's been born of the spirit, that the natural man really doesn't understand that. There have been many times, I, I'll never forget talking to Sam one time and we were on a job and Sam was a big guy. He made me look small. And with all of his might, he was yelling at me, Greg, you're a fool, you're a fool. You're too smart to believe this. You're too smart to believe that. You're a fool. As he followed me around, I didn't expect him to understand because how can he understand the things of God unless the spirit reveals it? You know, Nicodemus, he should have understood these things. Why are you amazed? In fact, in verse nine, Nicodemus gives his second response. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? He is, he is frustrated. He's, he's wanting to understand. He, he's amazed. It, it doesn't, all of his training of his, in Judaism and in the, in the law doesn't coincide with what Jesus is saying. What does he mean by this? And Jesus responds to him in verse 10 and following. Jesus answered to him and he says, are you a teacher of the law and yet do not understand these things? I always read that verse and it kind of, kind of gets me a little bit because it makes me realize that God expected him to get it from the scriptures. God expects us to get his truth from the word. We need to all be students of it. Verse 11 says, it is true, it is true. I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. But you do not receive our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? In other words, Jesus is saying, hey, I've told you things that are earthly and you don't understand. How do, you, how do I expect you to understand heavenly things? And I think sometimes we get tripped up over scriptures or with our faith in God over earthly things because we don't understand them. Well, well we're not gonna understand the heavenly perspective. He says in verse 13, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man. When Jesus entered into our world, he's talking about, he's the one that ascends. He's the one that brings truth. And then in verse 14, he says, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up and whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever or whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. It's interesting here because because in this passage, I think God talked, or Jesus is talking about something very specific to our faith. And I'm gonna to try to use this board and try to kind of describe it. I, I want you to know and understand, and I, and I say this without any shame whatsoever, that I take the scriptures to be truth. What the scriptures are telling are, are truth for me. So I believe in things like a literal Adam and Eve. I believe in a garden. I believe and understand that that God, if he hadn't stepped into our world, we would be in a course of destruction. And so for me, it's really important to kind of see the big picture. 
So when you think about it, when God created, he created Adam and Eve. Now, if you were in my college group, you know I don't spill very well, especially when I'm trying to talk and, and, uh, and, and, and write at the same time, just so you know that, okay? But when God created Adam and Eve, in the garden, there was no pain. There was no shame. You didn't, you didn't see the iniquity that we see today, the hatred in the heart of man where the destruction of, of, of humanity with one another, you, you, you saw a perfect environment. You, you saw a perf- perfect relationships. And in fact, in that perfect relationships, in those perfect relationships, you saw it not only between Adam and Eve, but you saw it with God too. There, there, was a, there was a unity, there was a oneness. It's this world that God created humanity to, to be in. God did not create our world to be, in, to be in the disarray that we see it today. But because Adam and Eve did something that, <clears throat> that they weren't supposed to, they ate of the fruit. So they ate of that fruit. And there was, there was no one else. There was just Adam and Eve and they ate of the fruit. And as a result of that, it plunged them into the grips of, the grips of sin and death. First Corinthians 15, 56 says this. It says, the sting of death is the sin and the power of sin is the law. Because of iniquity had entered in through humanity, it plunged humanity into a course of destruction that they could not deliver themselves from. It says, just as sin entered into the world through one man, Adam, so now righteousness entered them through the world through one man, Jesus. It's what we understand when we begin to look at, 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 the, at the course of humanity. So every time that Adam and Eve had children and it's, and it's gone out through the course of humanity, and I'm just gonna draw this line for this. Oh, that sounded good. Through this course of humanity, it, everyone that came along, they had sin. Because all that Adam and Eve could produce was, was children that were, that were already in the grips of sin and depravity. And so humanity began on a course that it could not, it could not stop. It could not detour. And if we go to Revelations uh, chapter 19, in Revelation 19, verses 11 through 15, it talks about the great white throne judgment. That is my throne. Isn't that great? See, if I was one of those really, if this was Matt up here, he'd make this throne look really good. He wouldn't just do this, but he's more creative than I. But at the great white throne, there was a judgment made. Everyone who had their name written in the, life of, written in the book of life, they, didn't, they, didn't, they weren't judged. But if your name wasn't written, you were cast in the lake of fire. In Revelations 19, it calls that the second death. So, so, one of the, so when you think about, you know, a lot of times I'll, I'll talk about humanity being in the grips of, of depravity and the, and the clutches of sin and death because this is the course of humanity. It, it had no hope. You know, Doug says, I believe I can determine my own destiny. Doug couldn't overcome death. He couldn't do it. 
In fact, in, in Romans 8, 2, it says the law of the, of the uh, spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So there was no hope without Christ in, in the course of humanity. We, we like to blame God for, 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 for all the pain and the sorrow and the sickness in this world. But the reality is it's the result of depravity, which was, was the result of disobedience to God. And so, so there was man and humanity left in its own course. And left there, there was no hope. There was no, no way to pull themselves out. You could have you been like Joe and think, I, I'll just be really good all my life and somehow God's gonna let me into the kingdom. It wasn't enough. Well, I can determine the scriptures and what they say so they fit that makes sense to my mind. It doesn't matter how much you make them fit. You're on this course. And then God said here in, in, uh, in verse three of John, verse 16, what does it say? For God so loved the world. You know, I used to always say that for God so loved the world. And I think of all the people, but reality, what God saw was the course of humanity and its clutches of sin and death with no hope. Man could not pull himself out. Woman could not pull himself out. They were, they were stuck in the grips of depravity and sin and death were in control. And then what does it say? For God so loved the world that... What did he do? That he gave his only, and the text says only begotten son, the old King James, he gave his only son. That God interjected in the course of humanity and he sent his son, Jesus Christ. And he was lifted up. Remember in verse 15 where it talked about there, and if you go back to Numbers chapter 20, I believe it was, and Israel was, was complaining and griping about God and his provision. And there were serpents that were sent into the camp. And when they were bit, they died. And then Israel repented and they, they recognized the, the foolishness of their heart. And they begged for forgiveness. And God told Moses, he said, lift up a, a brazen serpent on a, on a huge pole where they could see anywhere in the campment. And if they got bit, they would go out. And if they, if they looked and they believed then they would be healed. And they knew God healed them. And Jesus is saying that, that he was sent and that any that would look to him and believe, that believe in the son that God gave, that any that, what, that believe for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes In him. See, it's by faith. I didn't earn my salvation. I didn't attain it. It's simply by faith that whoever believes in him will not, will not what? Not perish. See, they will not perish. They're on this course of destruction, this course where they're going to perish. They're on a course to the second death. But whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Wow, that's good news, isn't it? 
that God loved us so much. So when it talks about the love of God and people are talking about the pain and the suffering, how can a loving God, I wanna say what that loving God did is he gave you a way out of this path of destruction. He, He gave you a way where you don't face a second death. You see, when it talks about being born again and and that born from above, it's a transformation. There's a transformation where you you leave this course and you begin on this course. Where you begin eternal life. You begin to live in a new world, in a new life. You are no longer that old man. You're a new man. The old things have passed away and behold, all things have become new. And there's a transformation in the life that God has for us is a life without shame, without pain, without destruction. It's a life that we have with him where Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us. You see, along this line, everybody is born and they face death, don't they? I always say to these guys, well, how do you, how do you conquer death? And so what happens is if you're born, if you're born once, You die twice. What do I mean by that? If you're born physically, you're gonna die physically, but then you're gonna die in eternity at the second death. I believe this is separation from your creator. This is separation from God. But if you're born twice, die once because there's new life in what Christ has done for us that's why when you look at this passage when you look at this passage and he says he says in verse in verse 17 for God did not send the son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him Jesus didn't come to condemn us he came to save us and then he says in verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. Here's the picture. What does he mean by that? It used to bother me when you mean, what do you mean I'm already condemned? I'm already on this path of condemnation. I'm already on this path of destruction. And if I don't believe in Jesus, then I'm already condemned. I'm already in this place of hope. This should motivate every one of us who have been born again in this room to share our faith. This is the power of God unto salvation. This is the only message I know that gives eternal life and has eternal benefits. If we spend as much time understanding this as we do our investments and trying to multiply our investments, how much different might the world be? This is the one thing you can do in this world that has eternal consequences. This is amazing, amazing. He did not come to condemn the world. He came that he might save the world. And those who believe will be saved. Those who do not are already on the path of condemnation. He goes on and he says in verse 19, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. They, they, They know of Christ. Why do you think that Tom wants to make the Bible fit what he says? Because he doesn't like some of the things God says in his word. Why do you think Doug wants to be in control of his own destiny? Because he doesn't want someone else telling him what to do. We fight those things. Isn't that what Adam and Eve did when they looked at that fruit and they saw it was good and they wondered, is God keeping good from us? 
And one of the temptations was, hey, God knows that if you eat of that fruit, you will be like him, knowing good and evil. They wanted to be like God. We still want to be that way. We still want to be in control of our life. We want to be in control of the good. We want to determine the good. When things don't go wrong, obviously there's no God, right? But we survive by faith, believing in the one whom God sent. He goes on in verse 20. He talks about those who respond and he says, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to light so that it may be clearly seen that his works uh, have been carried out in God. It explains a person, how they respond. It explains who they are. You see, John wrote these things. He wrote these things about being born again. He wrote these things in order that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and believing you might have life in him. Maybe you're here today and you've never received Christ in your life. Look, I'm gonna be at the back of the room on this first song. And you wanna come talk to me? I'd love to open up my Bible and share with you God's saving grace. I'll be back there. Talk to, I'll wait as long as there are people that wanna talk about it. I'll be there and be available. All right, let's pray. Father God, just may your spirit move in our hearts. Father, to the believer, may it, may exhort us, may it encourage us, may it challenge us of the message that we have. So many times, Father, we get so sidetracked with the busyness of life and we have this message. It might just be as a parent investing into our children and teaching them of your goodness and, and Father, as a grandparent into our grandchildren. And then, Father, just being available and the people that we meet, asking you to open doors that we can share of this good news the difference that Jesus made in our lives. Father, I just pray that you would speak to your people and just where they're at. I also pray, Father, for those that might be here this morning and maybe they've never trusted in Jesus for their salvation. They've never come to a place, Father, where they've kind of yielded and finally said, I'm gonna believe in the son. I'm gonna believe in Jesus through his death, his burial, his resurrection that I might have life. And I pray, God, that if there's some here and they want to know that today they would just seek me out at the back of the church. And that, Father, we can open up the scriptures and talk about the new life that we have in Christ. Father, we are your people. You do as you please. In Jesus' name, amen.